Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service Podcast. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Well, we didn't have the Broadway sing-along last night, but we did get a little bit of Broadway this morning. A little bit of South Pacific that probably, as a musical now, can't even be done because it has one of the most racist portrayals of an Asian character, but also has that song of incredible staying power, reminding us that we have to be carefully taught our prejudice and Sondheim with the song from the 1970 musical Company, reminding us of how wonderful we can be together and how badly behaved we can be together. How what binds us in marriage, in society, in our little tribes can be habits that are beautiful and awful. And this morning, we're talking a little bit about the so-called little hurts, microaggressions, that layer one on top of the other until those who are on the receiving end of them are covered in emotional scar tissue and plagued by literal trauma that decreases health outcomes and can contribute to things like teenage suicide. Professor Chester Pierce, whose time in this world was racked with macroaggressions of whites against blacks, as you heard, was the first to coin this term, microaggression, to name the less obvious, perhaps, but no less stinging hurts we did to one another. These so-called microaggressions, a term that Ibram Kendi actually rejects in favor of more explicit and accurate terms that describe what happens. He likes to call the ones that whites perpetrate against blacks racial aggression. These so-called microaggressions are maybe in some cases more stinging because they can go so easily without being named, right? Or they can be denied and Perhaps those suffering them then get gaslighted in ways that actually add one more injury to one's identity and sense of worth. Dr. Pierce's term was broadened by psychologist Darrell Wing Sue to be applied more broadly than just acts of aggression that whites committed against black people. And the ones, for instance, like what we saw in the skit this morning. The term 
got broadened to include all the ways in which these same kind of diminishments were delivered to groups of people of any and all marginalized identities. For a girl, you're pretty good in physics. Come, welcome, come to church in your wheelchair. Just keep knocking at that side door and eventually someone will see and let you in. That's a funny accent, where are you from? I hope you have all your papers and you're safe. So who is the woman in your relationship and who's the man, as someone once asked a lesbian colleague of mine. You know, I am fine with you being fill in the marginalized identity, but don't talk about it too much because other people might not be so welcoming. There are so many ways we manage to harm one another. And if I had to draw a thread that sews them all and connects them all together, I think it would be all the ways in which we say to another person, someone of marginalized identity, that they are other. And that they are seen only in part, only mostly for that part that makes them different than us, the one most obvious to us. And let's be honest that so often focusing on this piece of the marginalized part of someone's identity, it often comes laden with all the prejudices and biases around and against that piece of a person's identity. So it's this toxic combination that the person we seemingly sometimes are trying to connect with is not only not seen for the vast majority of who they are, but the part that is seen is abused. And when that experience is daily or even multiple times a day for a lifetime, it takes its toll. Let's bring it home a little. Imagine, oh, it's the old guy. Hey, the old guy is here. I mean, it's welcoming, right? Hey, you're pretty spry for an old guy. Hey, Tigger, Tigger's still working, huh? Not dead yet. <laughs> Imagine, all day, every day, for your whole life, if that were possible, you're not John the accountant, or the mountain climber, or the person who's such a good friend and a great son, or that fabulous chef of that incredible chicken curry. No, you're the old guy, marginalized, doddering, emasculated mascot of humanity. And fill it in for whatever your own possible marginalized piece is or are, if you need to fill it in, if it's not already been made obvious to you by the world. Maybe you're the only woman in the boardroom, but always pointed out that you're the woman in the boardroom, or you're the guy, the gay guy on the basketball team. And no one lets you forget that one piece. 
or you're not the poet, the exquisite poet, but you're the Mexican poet at the poetry group who's always asked about the Latin American poets, though actually what you love are the English romantics, but no one ever seems to ask you about those. And what gets obliterated and what gets reinforced in a thousand so-called micro-moments is all of this, this aggressive aggressing. And the volume over time is enough to break another's back or spirit, and it's astounding how often it doesn't. It speaks to amazing resilience, but not one we should keep testing in one another. Because the unfair part of all of this, of course, is that those who commit the microaggressions, the harms, are often oblivious, right? When we do it, we're often oblivious. The aggressor administers the cut and then walks away, scot-free. So what would it mean then to try and figure out the ways that we can share the burden of those exchanges? What if the first goal of being in all of this together as we are were to understand that a successful first step is just that we know we're sharing the pain because we experience it. So this month, I'm offering another chance, like we did last year, for folks, especially white folks, who want to read Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, to do so and to come and read it. And I think it's a great book. How many folks here have already read it? Oh, that's great. Good. It's not an easy read. I think, Eric Shackelford, you were taking a class in death and dying somewhere else and uh, sometimes would take a break from Rob and D'Angelo's tougher chapters to read about death and dying. <laughs> it is tough because she points out a lot of things that are painful to see and understand. And I think talking about it together makes it a lot richer to process. So I invite everyone to come, but one of the things that Robin D'Angelo talks about in the book, one of her anchor concepts is, of course, what she calls white fragility, the title of the book. It's this idea that when confronted by racist, hurtful acts, white folks often get defensive. They decide that the person who's pointed out what was done wrong didn't choose the right words or the right time to do it, didn't assume the best about them, or wasn't kind in how they said it or doesn't know them, and so how dare they? Or a thousand reasons why the person who shared the truth of their experience, the harm that they experienced, was really the one who was in the wrong. You can only imagine what Ibram Kendi's teacher would have said if he, as a boy, had pointed out that she didn't call on the black kids, that he was rude, that so-and-so actually had their hand up first, that she didn't appreciate being called a racist, not by him. And the boy would have been made wrong, though he was right. She, like so many teachers, had fallen into, as so many still do, this implicit bias that influences who they favor and who they encourage and who they assume will do well in class. I read a study not so long ago that had teachers being told that certain students were the smartest in the class, randomly assigned. 
an implicit bias so influenced how the teachers treated the students, how the students internalized that treatment, and how the students performed, that on average, those that had been randomly assigned as the smart kids did better. It matters. And so hearing the critiques that others offer us of where we've wounded or made assumptions matters too. And that means that learning these eye-opening, scales dropping from our eyes, moments, these moments of transformation that we say we're open to and want in our lives, and I think in the end are grateful for, that it requires tough skin, that it requires dropping white fragility, paying attention to male fragility, or ableist fragility, or heterosexist fragility, or class fragility, or any fragility when it rises up in us. It means that what we do is to know when our back gets up, if someone names something that we've done wrong, even unintentionally, and that right behind the defensive, fragile response, which is human and understandable, we say the mantra, it doesn't matter how it gets said, or it doesn't matter when, it matters that it gets said, so I can learn and grow and be part of the healing. And then we say out loud, that was hard to hear, but I'm so glad you told me, because it must have been even harder for you to experience. And so thank you for risking telling me. And I'm sorry, and I will try not to do this again. Are those awful moments? For me, yes. I hate them when they happen, almost always. I hate when I hurt somebody. I hate feeling like a bad person. I hate feeling ignorant. I hate feeling wrong. I hate feeling like I participate in something that I know is so painful, but I still can't see it. But I'm also glad to know, right? Because otherwise, I'd spend a lifetime like some racist, oblivious, even, even blithely typhoid Mary, <laughs> spreading evil and disease in my wake of a kind, right? Because that's what we'll do if we're not told. And if we feel, any of us, feel the pain at any moment when something is pointed out of this kind that was hurtful, well, maybe we can take enormous consolation in the fact that the person we hurt for once is feeling a little less pain in the aftermath. Because unlike that girl in the classroom with her head down and the boy whose critique who would have been gaslighted, we hopefully have made the person feel heard and honored. We hopefully have made it clear that there is a real apology for the hurt they experienced, and maybe there will be healing. 
And what's more, that healing in the larger sense is possible if we never repeat those wrongs again. So how hopeful is that? Or maybe we'll catch ourselves before we do it, or maybe we'll intervene when we see someone else doing it so that the person whose marginalized identity is being brought into the fore and wounding them once again, the way it's been used as a weapon, maybe they won't have to do all the hard work for once and will stem the tide. Well, here I just want to make one last point, and that is that no one is immune from doing this kind of wrong. Even if you've suffered pains like this yourself, even if you yourself have one or more marginalized identities, Indeed, D'Angelo points out the danger of any of us feeling enamored of the idea of ourselves as the good person. Instead, we have to know that there's no life, experience, or identity, or anything about any of us that makes us immune to ever having to consider being carefully taught a new way of being. In fact, woke folks often get casual with our own self-reflection, just as casual as people in privileged bubbles do. And sometimes those two overlap. I have had to defend, I've had people defend themselves against hearing their own mistake in microaggressions with defenses like, they are a therapist, so they know about all these things, <laughs> which was not a something that was enough to protect them, or saying they worked all their lives with folks with marginalized identities, which didn't actually protect them from the mistake they made, or they marched in Selma, which didn't make them immune, or they are part of a mixed-race family where they themselves have a marginalized identity. But there is no magic bullet or inoculation to guarantee that we will never be on the receiving end of these conversations and no guarantee that we won't have earned our place there. So defenses down. For all of us, the key to remember is that we can hurt, and sometimes, all too often, we won't know unless the person we have hurt is courageous enough, takes the risk enough, is generous enough in their life energies to tell us and then it's our job to thank them and change and reflect. Because people are getting hurt. A thousand cuts, bearing burdens of hurt in silence, leaving the aggressors to go on making the same mistakes like so many oblivious loose cannons on the streets. And one way we can work to stop perpetuating all this othering of people and oppression is to open our hearts first here and then wherever we go to invite conversations of this kind and do so because it's our spiritual commitment. It is a piece of our spiritual commitment and what the discipline of love and healing asks of us. Just this. 
So siblings in faith, we are all carefully taught a lot that needs to be unlearned. May we help one another to see what needs to be seen, to share in the pain of microaggressions, not so micro at all, and begin the healing in this land beyond the two white zone and all the other places like it. Bless us all in the work of answering the call to love. podcast of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org.